This is the Blackout Podcast. Welcome to the Blackout Podcast, where I get to talk to amazing people that do amazing things. And today I have Kat Smarts, an author and a very good friend. Thanks for coming on the show today. I'm glad to be here. So, why? What made you decide to write your very first book? <laughs> uh, well, actually, I don't really have a very first book. <laughs> <laughs> I started writing in high school. Mm. Uh, I uh, I grew up in the 60s, and being out in the middle of nowhere, lived in a very isolated region of northeast Georgia. And uh, television was our entertainment in the evenings and on weekends. So uh, we were really into the westerns. Mm. And came into school one day, and my little group of friends, we were all talking about the dream my friend had the night before, and we were all in it, and it related to a TV show that we all were into big time. And uh, somebody said, somebody should really write this down. Bingo. (laughs) That was the beginning of it. Mm. Um, After that, it came and went for a number of years, eventually... I think it's probably what helped lead me into journalism. Mm. I was a journalist for 20 years. And when we moved from the Texas border to Maine, my husband said, why don't you retire and start getting some of your work published? So that was really the beginning of the publishing. Mm. As far as the very first book that was published... That was American Slavery in an Hour. It was for the History in an Hour series initiated by an author and webcaster, I guess you would call him, in London by the name of Rupert Colley. Uh, Rupert is also an author, or did I just say that? Mm. Anyway, um, I'm into history big time. And... I found Rupert's website online, started communicating with him, wrote some articles for him, and then one day I got an email from him asking me to do a book for the series. Mm. So I spent about six months, I think it was, researching the book. Did he, did he give you the topic to write on? Or? Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. He said he wanted a book on slavery. So I wrote him a book on slavery, (laughs) and I sent it to him, and he said, I asked for a book on the Civil War. I said, no, you didn't. (laughs) You asked for a book on slavery. I can send you the emails. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) But if you want one on the Civil War, I can do one on the Civil War. I've only been doing it for nearly 40 years Mm. as a reenactor. And as I was telling uh, Miss Monica out front, that takes a lot of research. Yeah. Those people you see out in the field in the middle of July with uniforms shooting blanks at each other, mm. playing soldier, that's probably some of the biggest brain trusts in the United States or anywhere else you find reenactment groups. They're all over the world, by the way. Mm. Uh, those guys put in small fortunes, making sure that every detail of their impression, as it's called, 
is accurate. From the uniforms and... Everything, everything. We were talking about the hems of ladies' dresses having to be made right. Whoa. That's the kind of detail they do, and they spend thousands of dollars on small libraries doing research. So when I say brain trust, I ain't kidding. <laughs> These are very intelligent people. Yeah. Um, so the next time you look at them, don't think, oh, boy, a bunch of guys with guns. Mm. It's a lot more than that going on out there. Uh, but I did write another one. Then that one was American Civil War in an hour. Okay. I told Rupert, I said, there's no way we can cram this into 20,000 words, but I managed. Um. Uh, and then a third one came along after he sold the books to Collins, and they wanted me to do the one on Abraham Lincoln in an hour. All of these books are designed, as the title says, to be read in about an hour. Mm. Uh, their slogan, I think, was books for busy people. Mm-hmm. If you're on a plane, if you're waiting to go into a meeting, if you've got an hour to kill, you can download the book and read it and get an overview of the subject matter Mm. is what they're designed for. Uh, But then the first historical fiction, uh, you've read that one. I know that your wife has. Silent Tears. Mm. I started writing that shortly after we moved to Maine, so it was far from the first one I ever wrote. Uh, I've got about 60 manuscripts sitting on the top of my closet at home, and that doesn't include the ones that aren't on paper anywhere. They're just on the computer. (laughs) Um, This one, as I say, I started writing when we moved to Maine, and it deals with a a subject that is kind of uh, personal to me, uh, domestic violence. Mm. A woman who was abused by her ex-husband, not her ex-husband, her late husband, and his uncle, and uh, how she manages to get her feet under her and find a way to stand on her own two feet, with the help, of course, of the romantic interest that we all need in a good good historical fiction. Uh, but actually, that is a part of life. I would never have gotten past it without my husband, who's been very supportive of my work and my trying to get to the point where I am independent of all of those bad memories and that unpleasant past, even though it's something he doesn't understand. Mm. So, but that's for another time. Yeah. Uh, so, silent tears. Um, why? I mean, so you say it's it's not about your story, but it's based on something you've experienced. Um, was it difficult to share something like that in a book? It was cathartic. Mm. Uh, it helped me to understand some of the own my own issues that I've had over the years uh, and how I got past them. You know, you're just scrambling to get back to normal and you don't really realize what you're doing is finding a way to get over all of the things that have happened. Um, there's been a lot of trauma for me, uh, not just the domestic violence. I was diagnosed six years ago with PTSD. But again, that's a subject for another time. Mm. I don't really mind talking about anything. Uh, very few things that are off the table. Mm. So, uh, But that helps. Uh, a lot of people don't want to talk about it. It raises the memories, I think. But like talking about it for you does what? 
when you talk about it, how is it for you? I'm hoping that it helps someone else. Mm. Uh, that biggest issue with me, I think, though, with talking so much, I love to talk to people and interact with people. And I sit home all day with a dog and two cats, and they are not great conversations. <laughs> <laughs> My boxer will try to talk to you, but you really can't understand him. Um, so um, I, when you wrote the two books, well, three, right? So there's the, the first three and slavery, then, the then the Civil War, then Abraham Lincoln. Um each of those books took a lot of research, mm-hmm. right? Um, with this book, it's set in kind of back in that time, right? Post-Civil War. Exactly. Victorian era, yeah. So was any research involved too? Oh, yeah. It, even when you're as familiar with the subject matter as I am. Mm. And when I was doing Civil War reenacting, I kind of got tired of the soldier thing. <laughs> Uh, that's all the guys talked about, and women weren't really into it yet. So I started leaning towards researching civilian life and women. Mm. So I've most of my knowledge is regarding the life of Victorian-era women. Uh, and I did do a little bit of frontier era when I was living out in West Texas. Even when you know the subject matter, you still sometimes find yourself going, I don't know as much about this as I would like to. And one of the things I had to research here was funerary practices of that era. Oh, yeah, because her husband dies, right? Yeah, her husband. It opens when with her in her home, and it's visitation, which in that time should have come after the funeral. But her late husband's uncle had insisted on opening a house to visitors before the funeral. So a very domineering man. Um, But the funerary practices evolved during the American Civil War. There were so many things that had to be let go of, uh, such as waiting a year for a widow to remarry. There were a lot of women who were becoming widows at a very young age and very quickly they often did not wait a year to remarry and when they did they would drop the widow's weeds Uh, some didn't some did it Mm. just depended on how comfortable you were with it doing things the proper way was very ingrained into the victorian culture especially for women because this was an era when women had few or no rights. Mm. And as in the book, uh, a male relative could just run roughshod and do whatever they wanted. And there was nothing you could do about it. Because you didn't have the right to vote. You didn't have the right to call the law. You didn't have the right to do anything. Mm. And if it hadn't been for her... Knight in, I call him her her knight in rusty armor. (laughs) He's not exactly pure white, you know what I mean? Mm. Um, He comes riding in, and if it wasn't for him, you know, who knows what would have happened to her. Yeah. And you feel that, you know, writing characters that are not more gray than white or black 
uh, how does it feel writing such characters rather than writing it either white or black, but you write characters that are more gray? You mean try to write them as humans? <laughs> None of us are black and white. None of us are perfect. None of us are pure evil. Well, yeah. Even though I've met a few that come close. Um, <laughs> the character, the the bad guy in this book, he, he comes really close. Yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, I don't think there's really much of anything that's black and white except maybe Black and white. Mm. <laughs> uh, everything's a gray area. Uh, the Civil War, people, what was the Civil War about? Oh, it was slavery. It's not exactly true. Mm. That was just one factor. And it's a very extensive issue to discuss. Yeah. And I, I think that's a thing where when you either zoom out or zoom in to a topic, you see more a little bit more clearer than what you hear from someone or what you're told. And I think these days we are all on our cell phones and we have access to research. Like we can just find stuff, but there's also the point about finding the difference between a signal and the noise and not knowing what is real and what isn't. So having access to good research is super important for subjects like this. Oh yeah. Well, first off, the more you learn, the more you know. You've heard that saying. It's quite true. Every time you learn some more facts, some more details, when you encounter more information and more in-depth information, mm. the better your understanding and the more you understand a little bit bigger picture. People talk about the big picture, but to understand the big picture, you have to stand understand each of those little details in the image you're looking at mm -hmm. and the whole thing together tells a story and it may be quite different from the one you've always believed this is why i say you can say that the american civil war as a general thing oh it was all about slavery not quite mm. it's a lot more complicated than that and I think, you know, when you, some, most things, you'll come to that conclusion that there is definitely a lot more than what people think it is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. So yeah. when it comes to, you have all these manuscripts. So, like, how do you, how does it start for you? Let's start with when you're researching the books. What's your process for that? <laughs> well, they say there are two types of writers. There are planners. They're the people that you see in the movies that uh, they've got a stack of index cards and they're all pinned up on a bulletin board and because they've got their plot all laid out. You know, yeah. they're ready to go. Uh, the other kind is pantsers because <laughs> we fly by the seat of our pants. I fly by the seat of my pants. Uh, I may get an idea. I may come across an unusual name I like. Or I just start getting this image of something in my head. That's what happened with this. For some reason, I kept getting this image of a woman sitting in a room sweating underneath a black widow's veil. And that's where that started. And I'll start with the very first line. Um, the next book that I've been working on is set in West Texas, where I used to live. 
And it began with sitting out. We had a small ranch up on the side of the valley. And in that part of the country, it's the Chihuahua Desert. You can see for 70 to 100 miles on a clear day. Oh, wow. Uh, I was looking out one day and noticing the mountains in the distance and how the storms, when we rarely got a storm coming through in the summer, would push up against the mountains and just build until when they came across, they just basically exploded. They let loose on us. Uh, we didn't get a lot of lightning. We did get a tremendous amount of thunder, and we get hail and high winds and dust storms. Um, I was thinking about that and sat down and started trying to put it on paper. Hmm. Uh, and that was the beginning of this next one, which is a rider sitting up on the side of the valley watching this storm build and knowing that they can't make it down to the town below mm. before that storm breaks because of the flash flooding that occurs and the hail that could come with it and the high winds and all these things. Um, so she begins looking around. Sorry, I let it out of the bag. Um, <laughs> but she begins looking around for a place to spend the night. Uh, this is set at the end of the war. Mm-hmm. It's, she doesn't know it because she's in a part of the country where there's no fighting going on. Most of the activity in that part of the country during the war was spies moving back and forth. Soldiers did come back and forth across the border. Uh, Union soldiers out of California would use it as a back door into Texas. Uh, Confederate soldiers were based in that part of Texas, and Mm. they weren't supposed to go into Mexico, but they did. Yeah. these kind of things were going on, but it was primarily spy activity down there more than actual military engagements. Mm-hmm. And she kind of gets wrapped up in that. Uh, she's separated from her family by the war. And like any woman, uh, there's few options that you can turn to to support yourself uh, without your family. And she doesn't want to turn to any of those things. Mm-hmm. Um and she disguises herself as a boy oh, wow. and gets a job spying, not for the North, not for the South. She's spying for a British conglomerate that had a tremendous amount of money invested in the silver trade. There were silver mines in Mexico. Um, the war put that trade almost to a standstill. Very, very little of that trade going back and forth across Whoa. the border. So these guys were hurting. They were worried about their money. Mm. So they placed spies down there to keep an eye on things and keep the big bosses in England posted. Hmm. She goes for four years, even as a spy, almost no problems. And one of the bosses from England shows up and that's the end of her troubleless life. <laughs> he's, he's such a greenhorn that he just starts causing problems in every oh, no. direction. Um, Do you have and, a title for it yet? Pardon? Do you have a title for the book yet? Uh, I've had several working titles and haven't really settled on anything yet. Okay. Uh, titles are something I'm not good with, and I really don't choose them myself usually. Mm. When I was a journalist, I left it to my editor. The title of Silent Tears was one that I did not choose. It 
How did that come about? I have a cousin who works in medical offices, and I was telling her about it. And she is the one that said that she refers to it. She works with women who've been abused, mm. and she refers to it as silent tears. Uh, and when when she told me that, a light bulb went off. Yeah, and, yeah, because yeah. it's a great title. It goes with this thing, and, and and you know, it goes the thing with this character, what this character is dealing dealing with, and she has to kind of keep it to herself, even though it's a lot. Like she deals with a lot. Yeah. It, it's it's. Grueling this book. <laughs> That's what your wife said. <laughs> it's so. It's like. I mean, do do you, do you ever? I I don't know. See yourself in the character or what the character is going through because she like she faces a lot. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. My ex husband wasn't as violent mm. as hers. Uh, it was mostly. Uh, verbal abuse, oh. which, trust me, in ways can be worse. These kind of people, and they don't see it as domestic violence. They don't realize what they're doing. And I don't know if it's because they don't care or they're just blind to it. I, I don't know. Hmm. I don't understand their side of it, but I do understand mine. Yeah. Uh, What's happening to her are things that I understand. And I understand how hard it was to get past it. And this was a time when you didn't talk about it. Nobody knew what domestic violence was. Mm. If a man beat his wife, that was his business. And he didn't talk about it because it was an embarrassment to have a wife that you had to discipline in that manner. Mm. And, of course, the wife didn't talk about it. Because psychologically, they believed that they deserved it. They believed they were doing something wrong. And that's part of what you have to overcome mm. is you don't deserve to be treated like this. Nobody mm. does. And my daughter's going through the same thing right now. She divorced her ex-husband three years ago, and it took her two years to realize that he was verbally abusive. Oh, wow. Sometimes you have to step away to realize what's actually going on. Because, mm. you know, as with most things, when you're inside whatever this thing you're dealing with, you don't see all that's really going on. It's just it's almost like you have blinders on and you just have this small field of view. But when you are outside, you can see and reflect on experiences. Away, about, yeah. Yes. It's just like when you get writer's block. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I've learned how to handle writer's block. You step away. Mm. And your mind kind of has an opportunity to settle down and reset. And if you leave it alone, it'll kind of come to you. Wow. <laughs> okay. So let's uh, let's talk about you were... Tell me about this book. Doesn't have a title yet. When do you see yourself finishing? <laughs> well, the book's finished. Oh, yeah. Okay. Two, two sections, actually. Two. Uh, there's a sequel already. What? Well, I wrote it all as one book, and somebody said, "No, it's too long. You're gonna have to split it in two. Mm. Uh, and it wasn't hard to do because it's it was already in two separate sections. Okay. So. Uh, 
as far as publishing it, um, now begins the process of taking it to publication. Mm. Once you get a book done, that's when... It works out. Yeah. Some people don't hire an editor. I do. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm a big believer in two heads are better than one. Yeah. My last editor played a tremendous role in making that book better Mm. than what I had. They also help you get all the technical stuff ironed out. Mm-hmm. If you look in the back in the acknowledgments, it says it takes a child to raise a village. It also takes one to publish a book. <laughs> Whoever's name is on the cover only gets credit for the story. Uh, uh, you have an editor to help you out usually. You need proofreaders. You need people to do beta reading. You need um, someone to do your cover and in this case, the whole wrap, since it is a physical book, mm. um, they also designed the layout of the book, all the fonts, the title page, all those little designs and everything you mm. see. Someone actually sits down and designs all that mm. and makes the book look good and look professional. Um, you can take it to self-publishing with places like Amazon. Mm-hmm. I went to a company called Ingram Spark because uh, they will also help you do some self promotion, and oh. anybody who sells books can order from them. Mm. So, any bookseller you want to go to, if you want a copy of the book, you can order it from Amazon or go to a bookseller and get them to order it from Ingram Spark. There are other publishers who do the same, but most booksellers use Ingram. Yeah, okay. Um, there's also, I, I've, I've gone the self-publishing route, and I have gone through a publishing house, yeah. HarperCollins. There's now something in between. Oh, okay. This is interesting. Publishing cooperatives. And I'm, I've got an orientation with one of those coming up oh. in a couple of weeks, and I'm going to find out if I want to use them because... They provide a lot of the author services you need to publish your book, as well as doing the publishing and promotions and things like this. Wow. So uh, that's another option that's now available to writers who want to take a book to publication. It's kind of like, I don't know, I mean... Because I, ju- I just thought it was, you either self-publish or you find like a publishing house. But tell me this one is kind of, in- is really interesting to me. You want me to tell you about what it's like to try to get a publisher? <laughs> I didn't have to go through it with Harper Collins. Rupert Colley that I mentioned before, mm. he did that. Yeah. When he sold one of the books in the series, he sold all of them mm. to Harper Collins. Uh, And I still, I had no idea at the time that it was just a minor miracle that when I proposed Abraham Lincoln, they took it. Mm. But to actually start from scratch, Mm -hmm. I did, went through that process that you go through last September. I belong to the main uh, Writers and Publishers Alliance. Mm -hmm. Everybody should belong to a writer's organization. There's one here, Writers Federation of Nova Scotia. And you should have a writer's group to participate in 
They'll drive you crazy. <laughs> and they'll make you want to tear your hair out. But you need what you get from them in the way of the grapevine of what's going on in the writing community mm. and evolving as a writer. It's just like learning a job, mm. you know. And this is what helps you in your education is to belong to a writer's group and to belong to a writer's organization like mm. the Writers Federation. Now, I did belong to them, but uh, for a lot of my own reasons, uh, having nothing to do with them as an organization. They're a good group. They're good people. Mm -hmm. uh, but I went to Maine Writers uh, this year, and you can belong to both. Okay. Um, they don't care if you live in Maine or not. <laughs> you can, there are other people besides me in Halifax that belong to the Maine Writers. Uh, but they kind of co-sponsor uh, the main authors and publishers association. I think I have that name right. I'm not sure. They uh, are located in Maine, and you go to them if you want to publish. They're a cooperative, um, and uh, it really is a way to do something in between you probably are going to spend less than you would if you self-publish, mm -hmm. which is around, I'd say it costs me around $2,000. Mm -hmm. um, and your first book's not going to make that back. And my book has sold pretty well, and I might have broken even, maybe. Mm -hmm. These days, you don't really go directly to publishers anymore. You oh. can, but it's not the best avenue. Mm. Uh, the main writers has an event every year called Pitch, and it is where you have the opportunity to go in and pitch your book to an agent, a literary agent. <clears throat> I did that last September. I pitched to five different agents, and it was harrowing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, it's not going to be that bad on a regular basis mm. but you've got to learn how to do it and it's not easy to know i did all the homework they gave us i used all the links they gave us i printed everything out and sat down with a highlighter and an ink pen mm -hmm. and went through it and i still came away empty-handed mm. that's not unusual uh the thing with agents is if if they're not interested they're not interested it doesn't mean your book's not good yeah it just means you haven't found the right agent to work with it is a partnership so you have to find the right agent and every time you want to publish again you've got to either go back to the agent you used last time or you got to find a new one so you got to go through this over and yeah, over yeah, and yeah. over and over mean. so it can be nerve-wracking yeah. um I'm going to end it with this. Um, you've written a lot of books and you finished this one. When what would what advice would you give someone that wants to write or that wants to become an author? Like I just said, join a local organization mm. to educate yourself about what's available to you. Mm -hmm. You can go to workshops. Usually if you belong to the organization, you're going to get a discounted fee for taking the workshops, which, by the way, when I go to this orientation, the day after <laughs> is 
a workshop on perspective, which is my week area. Uh, and I'm taking the workshop for half of what non-members are paying. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the orientation with the uh, publishers cooperative is free. Oh. Uh, but that's where you learn. And the writers group, that helps. It just kind of is other people like you, yes. you know. Uh, you need that. And as I say, it also gives you an entry point into the grapevine of information that circulates through the writing community. Mm. Uh, the people in my group, which is the Evergreen Writers Group, now you can belong to more than one, but the Evergreen Writers Group um, is, we're a mixed bag of cats. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, a, I'm a published author. Mm. I... Not to brag, but i am probably been published more often than anybody else. Mm. Um, in fact, I gave them a mini-workshop the other day. We're doing mini-workshops at our second meeting of the month now. Oh, nice. Uh, I did one in January, I think it was. Or was it February? <laughs> I don't remember. Um, on promotions, on how to promote the books, because we have a new anthology coming out. Oh. And I was trying to educate them on better ways to promote that book when it comes out. Mm. But in our group, we have people who I don't ever want to be published. They only send articles to magazines. Okay. We have people like me who have been published repeatedly. We have other people who self-published. We have a guy in our group who's a graphic novelist. Oh, nice. Uh, some people just write poetry. Some people write flash fiction some people whatever we don't care mm. bottom line if you're a writer and you want to come and join us come. here we are <laughs> uh and if you're looking for us go to facebook you'll find them um wow yeah you know i have so many questions but like we're out of time and i i think actually no i know that i'll definitely have you to come back on the podcast because i have so many questions to ask but i'm super grateful you came in today oh happy to do it thank you so much guys it's fun it's always fun to visit with israel <laughs> always always and pretty miss monica thank you uh-huh This is the Blackout Podcast. Thanks for listening.